Let's, uh, let's take a look at the scriptures today. I have my whiteboard. I'm in a bit of a different setting, which is fun. And I am aware that there's a bit of a weird fishbowl effect or fish eye effect or whatever that, the right word is on the, uh, on the camera. So if it looks like I'm kind of bending, uh, I, I assure you I'm still the same shape I've always been. So just take a moment and think with me for a second uh, of if you've ever experienced that, that time when you were asked to join a, uh, like a, a family picture of a family that you weren't a part of. Just take a moment and, and think about those moments where maybe you were at kind of a, a friend's uh, holiday gathering or a, a picnic and they make a big picture and they say, hey, come on, get in over here. And you know that you're not quite um, supposed to be in that picture, but yet you have to have that decision of, oh, I guess I'm being included. So just take a moment and think about that. I'm gonna change one thing. There we go. That should be a little bit better. So, so uh, have, have you had a, a moment like that? Maybe you, uh, you went on a trip with your boyfriend and his family, or you were at a cabin uh, with, with a friend's family, or maybe you were injured all season on a sports team, and they win a huge game, and they're all getting together, and somebody looks over, and they see you, and they say, you're a part of this. Get over here. It's kind of a cool moment. Uh, it's, it's kind of a moment that one of those, one of those get, get in here with us where a line that was previously drawn gets drawn wider and gets drawn bigger. Uh, it, it feels, now sometimes maybe you're, you've been awkward in those moments, but ultimately it's a pretty incredible, pretty great feeling to be able to be included in a time, place, group where you kind of thought that you were on the edges, where somebody else looks and says, hold on, you need to be a part of this. Uh, when someone veers off course, to, to recognize you. We're, we're going to talk about going off script for a few minutes. Specifically going off script, going off the way things are typically done, the assumptions that are typically made in order to include in new ways. Uh, we, we've been kind of bouncing around different themes within uh, the, the Christmas story during this Advent. And I want to talk about something that's just not talked about that much. And, and it's one of my favorite things. We'll just talk about it for a couple of minutes. But I want to talk about Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Jesus. And so in, in Matthew 1, the whole story of the birth of Jesus starts with what most people would read as the most boring, maybe 16 verses in all of Matthew's gospel. All right. And so what happens is that the, the gospel story starts by uh, Matthew, the tax collector, turned disciple, turned um, evangelist in many ways, um, turned apostle. He writes down and he says, here's the genealogy of Jesus right off the bat. That's the first thing he says. The first three, first four words are, this is the genealogy. Uh, and, and so what he does is in Matthew 1, he goes down through all the way from Abraham and he connects Abraham, the first one to hear from God in a unique way about the formation of a people. Okay. And he traces Abraham and he goes down through the lineage all the way down to Jesus. Okay, and he goes through all these sets of 14 generations, and there's actually a couple of different messages that you can, that you can pull just out of the numbers of generations, which we're not going to talk about. Uh, but, but when we hear genealogy, and I've, I've spoken with a few of you about this because you've had questions, but when we hear genealogy, what we hear is uh, a historical account of like who my dad was and who his dad was or who my grandmother was and who her mother was. And, and that's just all it is. It's, it's a historic document, period. 
in biblical times and in Jewish culture, uh, to tell a genealogy was to tell a story. And it was about more than just the names, or it was about more than just who gave birth to who or who fathered who. The genealogy told a story about what type of people you came from. And so sometimes names would be skipped or omitted, and sometimes names would be intentionally kind of, kind of added that, that had maybe only a periphery connection to the family, but the story was important to tell through them because they are a part of the culmination of wherever that genealogy led. So we might look at that and say, well, wait a minute, is it true or not? And that's just the wrong question because we're looking through it from a completely modern lens. So yes, true, but true in many different ways. All right. So that's your little setup here. So, so we go through and, and uh, Jewish society was highly patriarchal. And so you would, you would use genealogies and you would trace everything through the men. Okay. But we run into an interesting thing because the beginning of Matthew, the story is not actually about a man. It's about a woman. It's about Mary. And Mary receiving this news that she was going to be the God bearer, what we call the Theotokos in uh, Orthodox wording, the one who bears God, the one who brings God. And so that's the name of the story. And so here's something fascinating that happens in this genealogy. We get all these typical men's names that go all the way through, and yet there are five women strangely included in the genealogy. We're told that Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We keep going down and we get, and Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed. And then instead of naming another father, whose mother was Ruth. It goes on, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And it goes all the way down, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. So we have these, these people, and it's, it's, it's very interesting because it's not just that they're women. Um, we, have, we have Tamar, we have uh, Rahab, uh, we have Ruth, we have Bathsheba, and we have Mary. So all these names, all right, they're all, they're all names of, uh, of, of women who have a role to play previously in the biblical narrative. Um, but there, there are other mothers who didn't make the list who are also included. So why is this included in the birth story of Jesus? Um, each one of these is specifically chosen by Matthew, specifically chosen by a former tax collector who had been an outsider in every single way in the Jewish world who had been invited and included to come in and join the family picture, okay? Um, who, who Jesus had gone off script to go and find. Now, the fascinating thing about each of these women isn't just that they're women and included in this story, but each of them in their own way would have been considered impure according to the purity codes of Jewish culture. They would have, had, they would have been people for whom the lines had been made to exclude them. Some had been treated horribly, some had been widowed, some were not even Jewish, some had questionable ethics, some got pregnant out of wedlock. But all of them would have been outside of the lines as they were written in Jewish culture. And so, so what's interesting is we see in the story of Matthew, we see 
this changing of the lines to include those who might formerly be excluded otherwise. And this is what God does throughout the story. God goes off script, off of the way things have normally been, off of this world where you would tell the story of who came from who all through the men's line and says, hold on, there's others who need to be told who you need to be told about. There's others who have a role to play, a significant role to play. God veers away from the proven ways of doing things, the beaten paths of assumptions of who's in and out and who is valid and who is worth mentioning and who is worth including in the story. God, uh, God challenges the assumptions of who deserves accolades, who is valuable. God challenges the assumptions and veers off course of the typical ways of even how God is supposed to work. God goes off script to include the unlikely, the undeserving, the imperfect, the undernoticed, and instead he crowns them with glory and he crowns them with honor and love and value and invitation to share in God's goodness and grace. He even traces Jesus's DNA through them. This is a part of how we see Christmas. This must become a part of how we see Christmas. I'm going to let you research these five women individually if you want, because some of them, to be honest, aren't uh, PG appropriate with their stories. And I want you to see that they are intentionally included in a culture and a story that was all about purity and keeping the purity, the world that Jesus came into. And Jesus finds the ones who would have been considered outside of that. And he reaches out and he says, I want you to be a part of this. Now, without trying to get into too much trouble with uh, maybe a few of you more uh, dogmatic friends, I want to suggest, too, that in Christ, God actually went off script in order to include. And I don't mean off script, meaning that God had never thought about this before, but I mean off script by moving away from what every assumption was of the way that the gods worked, every assumption was about the nature and the relationship between God and humanity and who is valuable, uh, up until this point, um, there, there were certain ways that God was understood and God was, was seen to have worked. God was mysterious. God was removed. God was untouchable, holy and separate. If you touched the ark, you would die. Remember that story? If you don't, look it up. If you touched the ark of the covenant, you would die. God's holiness is untouchable. But this child, you, you must touch this child. Do you understand that? You must hold this child. You must nurse this child or he will die. Do you see how the script gets flipped? You must touch. There's no other way to do this. You have to receive this new king and, to, and actually become intimately involved with the coming kingdom that he brings or it doesn't work. Um, God goes off script to bring humanity into the most important parts of the story, to redeem them and give them a chance to be a part of things. And as he, as Jesus grows within humanity, Jesus draws extra circles to include those who previously had only had lines drawn in front of them. He changes the ways that we read the greatest stories, and he changes who the greatest stories are told about. It's, it's earthy, it's scary, and it doesn't seem to make sense at first, but this is what Jesus, do, Jesus does. He reaches out. This is actually supposed to look like a hand, but I almost changed my plan because um, it's real bad. 
So it kind of looks like, given, let's just continue our theme from last week, kind of looks like a troll hand, but it's intended to help us understand that where lines were previously drawn, Jesus goes beyond that and he reaches out and he says, you, I want you a part of this. And it happens over and over again in the ministry of Jesus, not just in the birth story, but it's everywhere. And, and this whole thing, it doesn't seem to make sense at first of why God would, would work like this. Of why God would seek out not just the pure and the perfect, but the impure and the imperfect. The ones with bad backstories, the ones with a lot of trauma. The ones whose society would look at and say, yeah, I don't really want you in this picture. And instead says, come, I need you. Birth will come through you. It doesn't seem to make sense until you understand what motivates God. John explains it during a conversation with, uh, with Jesus and this truth-seeking Pharisee named Nicodemus. And it's really fascinating. And what I love about this is we love to really typecast people. Um, and, and we love to say, like the Pharisees. And that's fine. The Gospels talk like that a lot. But, but it's not always all the Pharisees. It doesn't matter what... Uh, what phase of life you're in, what group of people you're in, there's always an opportunity to grasp truth. There's always an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And so Nicodemus is this beautiful, shiny example of someone in the Pharisee class who was a truth seeker. And so he's talking with Jesus, and they're having this conversation about what it means to experience new birth, like new creation. There's so many different words for it. The experience of, of complete restoration, forgiveness, rescue, salvation, whatever you want to talk about. And, and John follows that conversation up in his book in chapter 3 by writing one of the most famous passages that we have, have ever encountered in John 3:16. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever trusts in him will not be lost but will share in the life of God's new age. That's how N.T. Wright, a uh, biblical scholar, translates that. Whoever trusts in him will not be lost but will share in the life of God's new age. But the, poor, the important point here that I want to highlight is the beginning of that. For God loved the world so much that he gave. Why did God send himself in Christ? What was the point of this, this whole thing? What motivated such an action of entering into this experience? It was love. God loved the world. And love is the motivator. And when love is the motivator, what do you do? God loved the world so much that he gave. You give. You give of yourself so that others can experience something wonderful no matter how it looks. Love makes you give so much that you're willing to go off script all the time. We humans are, are pretty bad at this giving thing, honestly. Um, but, but God gives with, with nothing behind it but a longing to show love and to be in relationship. And, uh, and we need to allow ourselves to dwell on that sort of giving this season because that is such good news. That, that when, when, when you love someone fully, that it, it changes how you give, it changes the attitude that you give, and it changes what you accomplish. Uh, maybe it's so hard for us to receive love like that because we have our own scripts that we don't often veer from when it comes to giving of ourselves. There, there's ways that we choose to give as people um, that are not the wholeness that we see in the scripture. Uh, let's talk about just a couple of them. 
uh, often as, as people, um, we give reluctantly. Even, even when giving of ourselves, um, we, we struggle with our own ego. And I'm not talking about giving stuff. I'm talking about sharing of who we are, of entering into experiences. But we often give reluctantly because there's so much selfishness that's at work all the time. Sometimes we give arrogantly. When we give arrogantly, um, we think that somehow we're either earning grace from God or we are someone else's savior. That, that, that they should look up to us now that we are so great every time that we give. And so these attitudes of giving lead, lead us to a place of kind of self-righteousness. Um, sometimes we give transactionally. When we give transactionally of ourselves, we expect that because we show love, we are motivated by the idea that as soon as we give, we now deserve something in return immediately. This can be true spiritually of God, of how we view God and our relationship, and it can certainly be true relationally of others. And this, this destroys the joy of giving of ourselves in relationships, and it makes real love impossible. And then we can give fearfully. This is a big one. Often, you know, when we so love the world, God so loves the world that he gave his son. When we so love the world, we, we give kind of fearfully worried that if we don't give enough, we'll be rejected or, or punished either by God or, or by somebody around us. And so we're motivated by fear. Of course, that's not what love does because perfect love casts out all fear. So this is often how we give, unfortunately. But consider this, consider God this Advent, the one who sends himself, the one who gives. God gives us the gift of Christ. Not reluctantly. Consider the story. The angels came to proclaim to the shepherds, and what do they say? We come and we bring you good, good news of great joy. Think about that. Uh, the angel meets Mary and he says, greetings, you who are highly favored. This is not reluctant language. In, in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, listen to how Paul writes, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, meaning Jesus, and through him to reconcile all, reconcile to himself all things. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. God gives, the Father gives the Son God gives himself, not reluctantly in any way, but fully with joy, you know. Um, God gives us the gift of Christ, not arrogantly. Consider the story itself over and over again. God coming as a baby, born a peasant in a peasant village, completely entrusting his presence to imperfect human beings. God needed to be raised by people. Think about the, the humble giving that comes in, in such a state. That's the, the wonder and kind of the baffling reality of the incarnation. God could have come as an adult. We don't reflect on that enough and what it means because the method and the message are connected. God could have come as an adult. Instead, God comes as a helpless child. 
completely entering the human experience. This kind of humility characterized Jesus' life. Love looks humble. It doesn't demand recognition. It doesn't hold power over another. It lifts from beneath, not on top. Philippians 2 uh, says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in human and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Think about how God gives of himself in Christ, not reluctantly, not arrogantly. God gives us the gift of himself, not transactionally. First John 4. So this is love. He defines, John wants to define love for us, and he says this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is not transactional love. This is preemptive love. This is love that goes first and does not demand anything in return. But the response, instead of being so compulsory, the response is so deeply transformative in the recipient that we can't want to do anything else except for respond in kind. That's not transaction. That's transformation from the gift of God's love. And then out of love, God has given us, obviously, the gift of himself. Not fearfully. Now, in this case, we're not worried about God being afraid. Uh, but we're asking the question about God using fear as a tool to drive us to love. And it's simply not the case. Don't be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. The angel tells Zechariah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, for I'm bringing you good news of great joy. We hear in the book of Luke, chapter 2, you hear the refrain over and over. God doesn't try to induce fear as a way of getting us to follow. Instead, God's put, God puts people at rest in his presence and reminds people not to be afraid, precisely because of love. Both fear and love can create a response. Yeah, I'm sure you can imagine times where because you've been afraid of something, you've acted differently. Because you've been afraid of someone's response to you. Because you've been afraid of what they would think. Both can control us. <laughs> um, but... And both can affect behavior, but fear erodes relationships, and love strengthens relationships. Love is far more powerful than fear. Love is a more powerful motivator than fear. Unfortunately, too many times the church has gotten this wrong. This, this whole idea of, of what it means for, for uh, God to go off script in the ways that we give, that are often transactional, that are often reluctant, that are, that are very rarely just reckless abandon. When, when God does this, the, the reason that we need to hear this over and over again, is that many of us are still learning to receive this gift of God that is including you. The fact that God's gift includes and wants to bring you in. Um, many still have not crossed that threshold of being in the safety of Jesus. There's still performance-based fear or worth-based fear. You fear you're not enough. You fear that you don't believe enough of the right things for God to be okay with you, that you might be accidentally getting things wrong, and it paralyzes you. 
How many times do we need to hear that God looks at the heart and understands the journey of those seeking after him? How many times do we need to, to, to hear that, that God looks beyond the exterior and shocks people with grace? The adulterous woman, the lepers, Matthew the tax collector, the outsider, Peter the denier, the failure, the criminal beside Jesus on the cross. All of them, Jesus alleviates their fears by overcoming them with love, by overcoming them with an, an outstretched hand of acceptance, of invitation. How many more examples do we need? Let love lead you into the spacious place of freedom in Jesus. That's the Christmas story. God has done the work, God has made the path, and we get to walk in it. I am fully aware of how exhausted so many of you are. Believe me. I'm trying to share a message from a basement studio. <laughs> and this is, not, this is not what I do best. I understand the exhaustion, friends. I get it. It's deep. It's been a lot of months. And so as I approach Christmas, I, I, even, even in, in processing this, this message about what it means that love comes as a gift, that love means giving, there's all this part of me, this kind of very American Protestant, kind of former evangelical in many ways part of me that, that wants to say, okay, that's such good news, so here's what you should do then. Here's how you should love, and here's how you should give, and here's how you should work, and here's how you should live. Uh, but if we're celebrating God's gift of himself today, then, then do you know what your job is? Your job is to, to sit there and receive it. It's not to take it and repackage it and then go out with it. We talk about that all the time. But sometimes your job is simply to receive the gift of God's love and inclusion and presence. That God looks at this story of all of the greats, all of the big famous names, and he sees your name and he says, I, I need to write that into the genealogy of Jesus. I need to make sure that the world understands that they are a part of the lineage. I need to show that God works especially well with the imperfect, the ones who are so acutely aware of their need of grace. And so just receive today. Uh, welcome. Surrender. Confess where your hands maybe have been so full holding other things that you haven't received the greatest gift that God could possibly give, the gift of Christ with us now and forever. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace. So, God is love, made known most fully by God's preemptive love, love that goes off script to include the outsiders and love that gives of oneself love will always be known by giving and so if we want to receive God's love we learn to receive what God has given us with open arms let me encourage you just to walk in that truth right now we're gonna keep things really really simple this morning just walk in the truth that God has loved you in the world so much that he sent himself through his son so that you would experience the fullness of life forever and wholeness.
That will eventually lead you to go out and love the world really well. But first, you need to sit in the gift enough so that you don't just grab it and go like a fast food uh, drive through Instead, we sit down at the table with Jesus, we dine this week, we take moments to reflect, to receive, to be at peace. Um, it's, it's not too good to be true. It's just really, really good, and it's really, really true. So we're going to pray here for just a moment and then uh, give you a chance to break out into three simple groups you do not have to share. Uh, it's only for five minutes, but if one or two of you are stirred, there's uh, no, no specific prompt, just anything that God might have been stirring during this time as you considered this story, the genealogy, the idea that God's love looks like giving. Um, and if you want to respond, go for it. So we'll do that in just a minute. Let's, uh, let's pray to kind of close out this time and, uh, and look toward uh, the celebration of Friday. Jesus, we, uh, we're fully aware that sometimes it's hard to be willing to be included because we feel like outsiders. Sometimes it's, it's challenging to, uh, to believe the good news that God loved us so much that God came simply to be present and create opportunity for relationship forever. And sometimes it's just hard not to think about immediately all the doing that comes after the, the receiving. Uh, but you give us grace and freedom to rest in this, Lord. So help us to uh, help us to be full enough during an exhausting season of your love that we no longer keep trying to look for it in ways that maybe we try to earn or we try to force. Set our hearts at rest, Lord, so that we can be full of joy and live accordingly. Amen.